All right, everybody, welcome. Very glad to see you all for the first night of, as you see on the screen and on the front of the notes you should have received on the way in evangelism for the faint-hearted. And we're going to have 11 sessions together over this uh, semester on this topic of evangelism. So evangelism for the faint-hearted. And I say on the first page of the notes that you should have received on the way in. So what is uh, evangelism, first of all? Tonight we want to see what it is, and then we want to see why it is. Why is it that evangelism is a huge topic for Christians because it's a huge topic in Scripture? Why is it something that uh, God wants us to do? We're going to see that tonight, and then we're going to see what the gospel, the message that it is we're to communicate, is as well. So I don't know whether we'll get to all of that. We may. If not, we'll continue this uh, section next week. But top of page one, what is evangelism? It is the activity of giving the good news to others. Now, we say good news, giving good news to others, because the word gospel is literally that, good news. In the New Testament, when the word gospel is seen in our English translations, it's from a Greek word, euangelion. Now, you're familiar with the last part of that word, angel or angel, because it means messenger. And when you put that prefix you on the front of something, it means happy or good, like in eulogy. So eulogy would be good words. Say good words about someone when you eulogize them at a, a funeral, a euphemism. So that's uh, saying uh, something in a good way that otherwise uh, would uh, be negative or, or, or bad. So euangelion, then, has that prefix of happy or good, angel, message, uh, or messenger. So it's happy or good message, good news. And so that's why we call the gospel that. We call the gospel good news because it's a translation of that Greek word euangelion. Now, a transliteration of euangelion is evangel. So if you anglicize it, uh, it's, it's uh, evangel. Uh, or evangelion. We get evangel and evangelist from it. So an evangelist then is somebody who gives the good news and evangelism is the process of doing that. So we have a sister church uh, at the corner of uh, Telegraph and Pennsylvania, Evangel Baptist Church, and that name Evangel Baptist Church then could be Good News Baptist Church because that's actually what evangel then means. So you put all that together, gospel means good news. It's a translation of that Greek word euangelion. Evangel means good news. It's a transliteration of euangelion. Evangelist is one who gives the message of the good news. Evangelism is the process of giving the good news. So when we have a class called Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted, then that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the good news message, and evangelism is the process of giving that good news message. And that's what's going to be the subject then of these 11 weeks together. So the title of the series is Evangelism, but it's Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted. Now, why, why faint-hearted? Why do, we, why do we say that? Well, it's because uh, we all really fit into that category of being faint-hearted when it comes to giving the gospel. I say in the middle of page one, who fits into this category? All of us pretty much. Because despite the fact that the evangel, the, good, the gospel, is good news, it's not always well-received. In fact, most often it's not well-received because before you get to the good news part, there's a bad news part. And the bad news part is that we've all offended a holy God by our sin, and that's not an especially popular message. So the, when you get to the good news, it's indeed profoundly good. But in order to get to the good news, you have to be willing to humble yourself to accept the bad news about ourselves, which is our sin and offense against a holy God. That's not popular. Lots of people don't want to hear that about themselves. Most of us don't want to hear that about ourselves. It takes a work of God in our heart in order for us to be open and willing to receive that with regard to, with regard to ourselves. And so that explains why a lot of Christians and a lot of churches try to play down the whole sin piece of this. And you know that that's the case, right? That lots of Christians and lots of churches like to play down the whole sin piece. 
because it's not popular. And if you will play down the sin piece, you will be more popular and your church will be more popular. I know how to make this church quadruple within the next six months. I know how to do that. And it wouldn't be that hard. It would just be contrary to what the Bible teaches about the truth. But it is difficult to tell people that, in fact, they have sinned against God. And so uh, many people are uh, willing to water down the gospel in order to avoid that. Assuming you're not one of those people, assuming you're willing to tell the truth that is preliminary to the good news of the gospel, namely the bad news of sin, then that is going to make it uh, difficult for us. It is going to make uh, the best of us faint-hearted certainly at times, if not all the time. But, I say there, if you're fearful, it should say you're fearful in giving the gospel, you're in good company. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So here's Paul saying, pray for me that I will be less fear, that I will be without fear so that I'll give the gospel message as as I ought. And then in Acts chapter 18, we have an episode in the life of the Apostle Paul where he was going into the city of Corinth. And as he was entering that city the night before he was going to go there, and preached the gospel, he was, he was troubled. He was fearful about going, into, about going into Corinth. And the Lord appeared to him, the Bible tells us. And we have that at the bottom of page one. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So if you're faint-hearted, if you're a bit scared about giving the gospel, then you're in good company because that happened uh, That happened to Paul as well. And uh, that's most important. That's the best company, uh, the Apostle Paul. I will tell you that it happens to me as well. And I, for a living, preach the gospel. But it's, frankly, easy to do that when you have people who come to you rather than you going to them. So when people show up at church, they expect me to do this. So it doesn't take a whole lot of courage for me to do what they came sort of expecting me to do. But when when I'm outside of this setting, just like you are in an everyday setting with family or friends or somebody at a, a Panera or a Starbucks, and I'm going to give the gospel to that person, then I feel that sense of slight fear as well. This person's not going to like what I'm going to I'm going to tell them. So I can certainly relate to it, and uh, more importantly, the Apostle Paul could relate to it. So we've all got that. I think uh, you're here because the title of the series at least intrigued you, that evangelism you know is something you should do, but you've also got this uh, at least tinge of faint-heartedness like I do. So then the question is, top of page two, why should we overcome our fear? What motivation should we have for deliberately and intentionally seeking to overcome this fear that we might have of giving the gospel, perhaps being ridiculed, perhaps uh, being rejected uh, in not only in the message, but even personally being rejected. So that gets to the motivation for evangelism. Now, here's the definition of the gospel in that first paragraph on page two. It is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin Through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a full definition for you of what the good news is. That God's grace has overcome our sin. That has been accomplished through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there are three principles that motivate the undeserving recipients of God's grace. That would be us to share to share the gospel. So I want to give you these these three principles. We'll spend a good bit of time on this this very first one. So the, the flow of thought here is evangelism is something that we're to do, give and distribute, communicate the good news. But there's at least a tinge of fear for most of us in that, making us faint-hearted. 
So we've got to be given good reason to overcome that faint-heartedness. And that's what I want to give you in these three principles, the first of which is imitation. When we share the gospel, we imitate the heart of our Father, who is, after all, the first evangelist. It is God who takes the initiative in our salvation. It is he who devised a plan to deal with our sin on the cross of Christ. It was he who sent his son to earth to live among men and die a cruel death on our behalf. It was he who sent his spirit to move upon our hearts at a point in time so that we understood and embraced the beauty of the gospel. There can be no doubt then that people matter to God. God has God has done all of that. And if we were to just take each of those actions that I've mentioned that God has done, we could spend a whole session and sessions just on each one of those. So it's a real mouthful in just those few lines. God has done all of that in pursuing us, in making possible our salvation. So there can be no doubt that people matter to God. And because they matter to him, they must matter to us as well. You have an, as illustration of the loving heart of the Father, the parables that Jesus gave in Luke 15. He gave the parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and of the lost son. We call that the prodigal, the prodigal son. And in each of those, something that really mattered was missing. And in those parables, Jesus talks about how then God or, and, or someone who has the heart of God is going to go after and receive uh, those things that were lost because they are precious. So we must imitate the loving heart of God. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. If this is the heart of God, then it ought to be our hearts as, as well. So there's this principle of, of imitation. And in imitating the character of God, in imitating the heart of God, what we're really doing is bringing glory to God. Imitating God is glorifying God. And that's what I have next on page two. Evangelism and the glory of God. People matter to God, but why? Is there, is there something intrinsic in, in us that, that cause us to matter? Is there something that we have autonomously, outside of, independently, that, that make us matter? People matter, but Why? The answer lies in God's reason for creating us and, in turn, his reason for rescuing us in salvation. Reason for both of those is to bring glory to himself. The reason God created and the reason God is recreating in salvation. The reason is the same in both, namely to bring glory to, to himself. And in order to understand why God created us and why he's recreating those whom he saves, we need to understand God's glory and its connection to evangelism. So that's what we're going to spend some time reminding ourselves or informing ourselves of. That the reason that God evangelizes, the reason that God took all of the initiatives that I mentioned just a bit ago, the reason God did that and then the reason that he commissions us and commands us to go and give the message is because this is all tied to his glory. So we need to see the connection between his glory and the evangelistic task. So ask yourself, what is God's glory? And I say in that paragraph toward the bottom, if asked to explain their purpose, most Christians would correctly answer to bring glory to God. The Bible is clear whether we eat, drink, whatever we do. We are to do it to the glory of God. But if asked to define what the glory of God is, ah, because that's one of those Bible words. That's one of those Bible words that you hear often but don't define. And you know it's the right answer to just about every Christian question. If you say glory to God, you'll sound like, you know, it's like when I was in college and I was taking economics and they said, look, I mean, my economics professor actually said this. He said, you know, econ economists all disagree with each other. You know, I, I think half the time, this is what the professor said, I don't think half the time they don't know what they're talking about. He said, you can be an economist if you just understand supply and demand and nod your head affirmatively. Say supply and demand, and you'll look like you know what you're talking about. If you're in Christian circles, if you say glorify God, 
or bring glory to God. You can say that just about to anything, and it'll sound very Christian. And we've all heard that, and we all say that, and we know passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31 do it all to the glory of God. But, but what is that? What do we mean by the glory of God? And then the truth is most of us can't explain or define what we mean by the glory of God And still fewer could explain how one goes about this important task of bringing glory to God. So what is it and what is its connection to evangelism? And that's what I have on the following pages. Now, these next several pages you'll see are a series of PowerPoint slides with some spots for you to take notes if you care to. This is uh, from a presentation that I've done over the years at a number of places. So that's why it's in the PowerPoint slide format. And I call it the great reason for the Great Commission. And we're going to be reminded in just a moment of where we get that idea of the Great Commission. Most of you are familiar with it. But what I want us to see is not only what we've been commissioned to do, but why we've been commissioned to do it. And that's what I mean by the great reason for the Great Commission. Christ has told us what he has left us here to do, but we want to know why it is that we're to do it. And hopefully the answer to that why question will be motivation enough for us then to undertake this evangelistic uh, endeavor. So in the middle of page three, we have the most well-known statement in the New Testament of the what we call the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, these are Jesus' final words. They're his final words before he ascends back to the Father. It's the end of Matthew. These are the final two verses of the Gospel of Matthew. So this is how Jesus signs off in Matthew's Gospel. Now, I introduce that verse by saying it's the most well-known presentation of what we call the Great Commission. It's the most well-known, but it's not the only one. Uh, The Great Commission is actually found in three other places. It's found in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 50. Luke 24, 46 to 50. It's found as well in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And it's found in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Now, it's found in each of those places in different wording, but in all of them, the time, the chronology in the earthly ministry of Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry, and he's giving his final instructions. And each of those who wrote those, Luke in both Acts and in the Gospel of Luke, John and Matthew, each of them are giving us a portion of what Jesus said in those final instructions. Now, it's called the Great Commission. What's so great about it? Well, it's great in terms of its scope. You're going to make disciples where? Of all nations. So it's great in terms of its scope. But it's also great in terms of its intensity. That is, these are Jesus' final commands. Jesus is saying... There's a sense in which this is what it's all about. This is what I'm leaving you to do. So I leave. I've trained you. Original 12, now down to 11. And then it'll be back to 12 in a few days. Uh, But Jesus says, I've trained you for these three years. And now you are going to go out and you're going to do this momentous, begin this momentous thing. But it's going to continue after you because surely I'm with you always, even until when? Until the end of the age. So it's great in terms of its scope. It's great in terms of its importance and its intensity. And so we've called it for years, decades, we've called this passage and those other three the Great Commission. Jesus' final words. Whatever Jesus is giving you as his final sign-off you can assume that it's going to be very important. So everything's supposed to be done for the glory of God. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
Jesus gives us what we call the Great Commission in his final commands before he ascends to the Father to spread the, the gospel to, to all nations. And that includes us. It goes all the way to the end of the age. But I want to see then what the connection is between this commission and the glory of God. And that's why, bottom of page three, I have the next passage for you. <clears throat> because we move now chronologically from A.D. 33 and Jesus giving his final instructions before ascending to heaven. And now you move forward into the future and a glimpse of heaven in Revelation um, chapter 5. And John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is given by the Lord a glimpse of a glimpse of the future. And here's what he says. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, here's what they sang. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So Jesus says in 33 AD, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go and give the good news. John is given this glimpse of heaven and the end of time. And in heaven, after the end of time, what he sees is people bringing glory and praising God. People who have been one to, have been one to, uh, God through the giving of this message. And they're singing in, in innumerable choir. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So you see Jesus saying, this is what you're to do. And you see at the end of time, this is what it accomplishes. Namely, the praise, the glory of, of Christ. In between what happens. And not only just in between, but even before Jesus gives the Great Commission, how does the glory of God fit into to all of this? So I want to give you over the next few pages a number of passages and try to tie those together to show you what is the ultimate theme of Scripture, namely the glory of God in everything we do, and in particular now in pursuing the Great Commission. Middle of page 4. You remember uh, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And in John chapter 4, he says to her, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So what is, what's the Father seeking? What does he care about? He cares about being worshipped. He cares about being praised. What's going to be happening at the end? He's going to be worshipped. He's going to be praised. So you start to get an idea of why there is this thing called the Great Commission. And we're going to see a lot more to underscore this, but you start to see it forming already. Why does God give us the Great Commission? It's so that it'll produce worshipers. So one, uh, one preacher has said this. He said, evangelism exists where worship does not. In any place and any person that is not worshiping the true and living God, evangelism needs to happen. Because evangelism is for this ultimate purpose of seeing worship take place. And Jesus says that is what the, the Father is, is seeking. Now, how has the Father gone about all of this? And how long has he been concerned about all of this? Well, it turns out for a very long time. As a matter of fact... Before time, he was concerned about this. Namely, that he be glorified, that he receive worship and praise. Bottom of page 4, Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Now notice, he predestined. 
So that would be eternity past. In eternity past, before God has created anything, before, uh, before in the beginning, God predestined that there would be a people that would be called out of the world and to himself for his very own. And the purpose for all of this, I have highlighted at the bottom of page four, to the, would be to the praise of his glorious grace. So what does God care about? God cares about being praised, being glorified. God cares about being worshipped. You see that further at the top of page 5. Further down in Ephesians chapter 1. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. But why all of that? To the praise of his glory. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 that we saw on the previous page is, in love he predestined us, that's eternity past, but now you move forward, you're in time when you get to verse 13. And in time, you were included when, at a point in time, you heard the gospel. So every one of you here, if you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus because there was a point in time in your life that you heard the gospel. And you responded to the gospel. How did you respond? Having believed. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal The promised Holy Spirit, a deposit, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, as the Bible teaches elsewhere, the fact that we have the evidence of the Holy Spirit within us through the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our future until the redemption of those who are, notice, God's possession. This is what God's all about. God's all about his glory. God's all about him being worshipped. God's all about him being praised. In order for that to happen, God is gathering up people that are his very own, his prized possession. And he's been about that since eternity past, when in love he predestined us to be adopted. And it was all to the praise of his glory. All right, so that's why God's doing everything he's doing. In particular, that's why he's doing his work of salvation in the Lord Jesus. That's why then he gives us a commission to go to all nations and to call out these would-be worshipers. Evangelism needs to exist in any place where worship does not. But let's refine what we mean by the glory of God just a bit further to help us get our minds around it. If you want a succinct definition of the glory of God, it is the display of his character. It's the display of his character. When when God is praised for who he is, like he was in Revelation chapter 5, you notice that it's, it's all about who he is and ascribing to him character qualities. So when we praise God, that's what we're doing. We're praising God for who he is and because of who he is, what he does. So the glory of God is the display of his character. And you see that in the middle of chapter five in a verse. Probably all of us know in Romans 323. The very first verse in the Romans road. If you ever learned the Romans road approach to giving someone the gospel. It's just using the book of Romans and several verses in the book of Romans that move from the bad news to the work of Christ to the good news and then how you receive Christ. It's all found in the book of Romans in a handful of passages, the first of which is this one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what does sinning and the glory of God have to do with each other? Well, what they have to do with each other is the glory of God is his character. And sin is failure to live up to his character. 
To put it another way, sin is failure to be and act like God. We were made to think and talk and act like God. Sin causes us to fail that, to fall short of that. All have sinned and fall short of the character of God. And in so doing, we fall short of the purpose for which we were made, the purpose for which evangelism exists, the purpose for which everything in this world happens, everything in this universe happens. Bottom of page five. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So the glory of God is the display of his, his character. And when his character is displayed, then the proper response to the display of that character is to be praised, like you see at the end of time in Revelation chapter 5, or like you see spoken of top of page 6 in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord, notice, glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So we're to ascribe to him. We're to, we're to praise him with our mouths. We're to worship him with our mouths. We're to worship him with our lives. By extolling his character when it is displayed and by displaying his character in the way we think, talk, and act. Failure to do it is sin. Falling short of the glory of God. Now I say we're supposed to show the glory of God in the way we think and talk and act. How do I know that? Well, there's Romans 3.23, failure to do it is sin. But now let's go back. Let's go back to creation. Let's go back to God's specific purpose in creating us, humanity. And we've gone to eternity past and we see in love he predestined us. And this was all to the praise of his glorious grace. And we've seen that he actually saved us in time so we would be to the praise of his glory. We've seen all of that. We've seen that we're to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We've seen that at the end of time, that's what people will be doing. We've seen all that. But now let's go back to creation, the first man and woman. And we have that for you in the middle of page six. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So here you have now humanity being created. The crowning achievement of God in all of his creative activity is humanity. And the major uniqueness of humanity from all of the rest of creation is what's contained in these two verses that were made in the image of God. So what does that mean? We're made in the image of God, meaning that we were made to reflect God back to God. We were made to show God, display God back to God. We are to be his image, or to put it another way, we were made to be mirrors. So that when God looks at humanity, he's supposed to see his character. He's supposed to see the way he thinks, the way he talks, the way he acts. He's supposed to see people who avoid thinking in ways he would not, talking in ways he would not, acting in ways he would not. We're made in his image. That means we're to display God back to God. God made us to be mirrors. God made us to be these mirrors, reflecting him back to him. And that's summed up at the top of page 7. In the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
The second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself and all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if I'm made to reflect God back to God, and if God is love, as the Bible says he is, then I'm to love God with all I am, and I'm to reflect that love I have for God in love for other people. So I'm displaying the character of God summed up in this greatest of attributes, if you were to rank them, love. And that's why Jesus said they're the greatest of the two commandments and everything else hangs on them. But in order to do that, uh, I'm going to have to be changed. You're going to have to be changed. Because even though you were made to be a mirror, reflecting God back to God, as am I, as are all of humanity, the mirror's cracked. The mirror is distorted. The mirror is messed up. The mirror is like one of those mirrors in the carnival. So you walk by the carnival mirror and you see a distortion of who you are. You see you in there, but you see you messed up, right? And that's what God sees now when he looks at humanity. The image of God, due to the entrance of sin into God's world, has not been erased The way some theologians say it, it's not been erased, but it has been effaced. It's been distorted. It's been been broken so that it's not clearly seen. God originally made us so that when he looks at humanity, he clearly sees his character in us. But sin means he still sees a faint vestige of his character, but he doesn't see it clearly. It's cracked. It's distorted. That's what sin does. And that, in turn, tells you what salvation is all about. Salvation is about repairing the mirrors. Salvation is a reclamation project for broken mirrors. If you want it in a nutshell, that's what it's supposed to be. That that God then rescues broken mirrors. He uses... Broken mirror repair shops around the world. Do you know what those broken mirror repair shops are called? Those would be churches. To restore and to, and to renovate these lives that are broken. And don't clearly reflect God so that over time we more clearly reflect him, back to him. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create worshipers. We're trying to create people who display the character of God, thus glorifying him. We're doing evangelism where worship doesn't take place. We're repairing broken mirrors. We're going to move on in a bit, but the mirrors are broken to varied degrees, aren't they? And they're all broken. And they're all eternally broken, meaning... There will be no hope unless God intervenes through the the message of the gospel centered on Jesus. But what's happened in people's lives varies. Depends on their circumstances. You have some people who are, are the mirrors are just about shattered. You can barely you can barely see anything of God left in them. Other people, not so much, but all of them equally lost. No matter the background, no matter what's happened to us or no matter what we've done, all of us are equally lost and all of us are equally in need of the same solution. So the mirrors are broken. They've got to be repaired. The gospel is about repairing the broken mirrors. The church is to be a broken mirror repair place. Now you see in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 what God's objective in salvation is. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to this, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, do you see what's happening here? We were made in the image of Jesus. 
We were made. Jesus is God. Everybody knows that, right? We were made in the image of God. And now in salvation, we're being remade into the image of God. The mirrors are being repaired. And that's God's objective in salvation. That we would be conformed to the likeness of his son. That we would look like Jesus in the way we think, talk, and act. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word firstborn is the preeminent one among his family. So among many brothers and sisters that he has brought into his family that are being conformed to his image, but he is the preeminent one. Of him, of this one Jesus, that we are being conformed to. Here's what the Bible says in John chapter 1. We have seen his glory. We've seen what he's like. We've seen his character displayed because we lived with him and we walked with him, says John. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, notice, full of grace and truth. I mean, you could, I think, you could fairly summarize the communicable attributes of God, I'll explain, in these two words, grace and truth. Summarizing the character, the godly character of Jesus, because he is, in fact, God. And I say the communicable attributes of God. You know, we were made to, in God's image, we were made to think, talk, and act like God. But, of course, we were not made to be God, right? You can never do that. But, and that's because God has a whole other category of character qualities, of attributes that belong to him and him alone. Those are called his incommunicable attributes. They can't be shared with his creatures. God is omniscient. There's only, only one being like that. There only is and ever will be. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. All of those things are true of God and they are incommunicable. They are not true of anybody else, only God. They belong to him and him alone. But then you've got this category of God's communicable attributes. And these are things like his mercy and his grace and his faithfulness and truth. And these are things that can be emulated by his image bearers. And in fact, or what it means for us to be made in his image is for us to display those communicable attributes of God. And Jesus is said here to be full of grace and truth. Dear friends, if I, if you could get a handle on just those two things and you would concentrate your life on being a person of grace and a person of truth, you would be a beautiful thing. I would be a beautiful thing. And here's why. Most of us, if we're either of them, we're one and not the other. Have you ever thought about that? Have you known a lot of people who are a lot of grace but no truth? They're really loving people. They're really relatable people. They're the people who will high-five you, hug you, be there for you. Very gracious little truth. Have you known people that are a lot of truth and no grace? They're able to tell you what you did wrong. They're able to tell you what the solution is in just a very hasty and harsh sometimes manner. But to be both grace and truth is to be like Jesus. Not only are people like that, but collections of people are like that in churches. There are churches that I see all the time that are one or the other. I see lots of churches that are just very big on we all love each other, which is a great thing. And they're very relational, very high relational quotient. But not much truth. And then I see, I know a lot of churches that are really big on truth. But not much relationship. 
And the Bible says Jesus is full of grace and truth. You should aspire and I should aspire to be people of grace and truth. And our church, CBC, should aspire to be a place that is known for both both grace and truth. Now, that being the, the case, all that being true, that God is about his glory, that God has been about his glory since eternity past, that in love he predestined us, to be to the praise of his glory, that this is the reason he saved us. It's the reason he does everything. He made us in his image so that we would display his character back to him. Sin has broken the display of that character and the gospel salvation is now repairing the broken broken mirrors so that we're conformed to the image of Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth. Now, because all that's true then, What's the evangelism process look like? Well, the evangelism process then involves as a very important element the way you and the way I live. You see, the good news is not just preaching the message. The good news is the preaching of the message by a person who's living the message. And the Bible teaches that. We're going to look at some passages that tell us that, but just think about it for a moment. Isn't it the case that if you've got somebody who's preaching the message but not living the message, it does harm to the message? It does harm to the cause? Haven't you known people like that? I certainly have. Top of page 8. This is why the Bible tells us then, with regard to our evangelism, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Notice, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Not what to answer everyone. That you may know the manner in which you should answer everyone. It should be in a gracious, a truthful, but a gracious manner. Now just ask yourself, why does that matter? Why does it matter how I comport myself when I'm giving the gospel? I mean, if all we need to do is just give the gospel, then I could just be as mean as a snake, couldn't I? And just give the gospel as long as I give it accurately. But no, since since the end game here is about the character of God and having people display the character of God, then the character of the person giving the message matters. And that's why you have to be wise in the way you act. That's why your conversation and the way you say things matters. Likewise in 1 Peter 3. In your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Again, you have another passage that's telling you not to be just a gospel machine gun. Not to just be somebody who blasts people with the Bible, blasts people with the gospel but rather be people who are living the gospel and thus back up with integrity the message that we're giving. The character of the evangelist matters because it's supposed to be a display of the character of the God whose good news we're giving. Bottom of page 8. Servants should be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Here's why. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, what does that what does that suggest that it's possible to make the teaching about God, our Savior, unattractive? By our failure to live in a manner with character that's consistent with the message that we're preaching. Failure to do that, if you're someone who can't be trusted in the workplace, if your employer is always wondering what you're up to and whether or not you're backbiting them and 
undermining them and all of that. And then you're going to try to give the gospel. It's going to contradict what it is you're supposed to be trying to achieve. Further still, page nine. Speaking to wives. And it, in First Peter chapter 3, Peter says to wives who are Christian wives but may have unbelieving husbands, it says, uh, in effect, don't nag them. And that's my, that's my paraphrase for you. Don't nag. But rather, let's see if they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So, husband or wife, if you're trying to if you're trying to get your spouse to change, and right now I'm just talking about general change, not change from non-believer to a believer, but just general change. If you're trying to get them to, to change, you know, nagging them is probably not the best approach. How's that worked out for you so far? Don't don't answer. And certainly, here's, here's a passage telling you very directly, if you're trying to be used as an instrument to move someone from being a non-believer to a believer, that your behavior and your comportment is of extreme importance. First Peter chapter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, said this, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, do you get the idea then that we are supposed to be people who have been reclaimed mirrors that are in the process of being repaired? And so, therefore, we should be increasingly displaying the character of Jesus being conformed to the image of Jesus day by day. And as a result of that, then, when we interact with unbelieving people, that should show up. And that's what's being said in these, and you could list many other passages. So contrary to what many of us have been taught or caught, giving the gospel is not just beating people with the message. But it's rather living in a way that's consistent with the message. You put both of those together and now you have something powerful. If you have only one of those two, then you dilute its power significantly. All right. That's the principle of imitation. Evangelism for the faint-hearted. And there's reason to be faint-hearted. There's reason to be have a tinge of fearfulness, as we said earlier. What's going to help you overcome that? Well, the first principle is the principle of imitation, imitating the, the loving heart of our Father. And imitating his character, which is what we were made to do anyway and what we're being remade to do so that we bring glory to God. So that's the first principle, imitation. Then there are the two other principles of privilege and gratitude. The principle of privilege, when we stop to think about it, it's incredible that God would consider using us to spread his message. Jesus left the earth and delegated the work of founding the church to 12 men who by all appearances were ill-prepared for the task. Yet in a few short years, it was said of them that they had, quote, turned the world upside down with their ministry. Every believer should ponder the incredible fact that God has chosen us to be his ambassadors. An ambassador is one who delivers the message of a king. The scriptures tell us directly that God has given us the grand privilege of serving as his ambassador. Second Corinthians chapter five. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now notice there's a colon there. You, you all see that? So he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Colon. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That's what the ministry of reconciliation is. That's the good news message. And he's committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though he were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our message. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful message and what a privilege it is for schmoes like me and you to be able to give it. And to be able to be his ambassadors. So what should motivate us? The privilege of imitation, the privilege, the, the principle of imitation, the principle of privilege. And thirdly, the principle of gratitude. We serve not primarily for what we can get, for, but for what we've been given. It is because of God's grace to us that we are forever indebted to him and to, to others. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, wise and foolish. And this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. For Christ's love, notice, compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So we are under an obligation, a glad obligation, a joyful obligation because of what's been done for us now to be used as God's instruments in the lives of others. Christ's love compels us to do this. The love that's been shown to us compels us to show love then to others. That's the idea. So the principle of imitation, the principle of privilege, and of, of gratitude. Now, with all of that, I want us to remember the marvel of the gospel message. I've got three minutes, and so I think I can put what's on page 11. I can give you what's at the top of page 11, or at least some of it. And then I can explain it. Uh, beginning next week. Man, this is the coolest thing. I mean, I'm just glad I came here to teach this tonight so that I could advance slides on my iPhone. Never done this before. It's just the greatest thing. I've just got these slides here on my phone. And I'm just tapping them and then they're showing up up there. Wow. I mean, look at this. The gospel is the glorious message. We saw that earlier, that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and burial. Uh, life death, burial, and resurrection of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what that amounts to is, you see the word at the bottom there? Deliverance. Deliverance. Now, when you go to the top of page 11 then, you take that, you take that full definition there, which we gave you several pages earlier. But you take that full definition now and you put it in this chart. It's God's grace that delivers us, that rescues us from certain things, and then in turn gives us other things. So that's why we have the word deliverance there at the bottom. Because at the heart of salvation is to be delivered, to be rescued. And you're being delivered, you're being rescued from something to something. Now what is that? What does that deliverance look like? Top of page 11. The very first thing it looks like, small font, sorry, is that God's grace delivers us from the persuasion of sin. You see it says effectual call there on the left. But it delivers us from, and you should have the, the word persuasion there. You should write in the word persuasion. It delivers us from the persuasion of, of sin... So then instead of our sin now, we have a new perspective, a new perspective. So in that first line, it's persuasion. And then that next line, it is perspective. That in turn gives us new eyes and new ears. We see things differently. We hear things differently. Behold, all things have become new. And God does that through something we call the effectual call. Now we've got... Another five of these things that are involved in salvation. But I want to explain each one of them. The effectual call and then regeneration and the rest. And that will take some time, so I'm going to stop there. We'll pick it up there next week. You should bring this set of notes back with you next week. When you come in, we will start at 7.15. Okay? And if you, don't, if you forget your notes, we'll have some more for you. We will have chairs set up in these other sections. The reason they're not set up now is because 
We're going to have the floors clean before Sunday. So we didn't want to put all the, had no reason to put all the chairs down. Uh, when you come in next week, even with all those chairs down there, if you could sit the way you're sitting now, that would be a great thing. So that we don't have some people way out over there and some people way out over here. Because if you do that, then I'm just going to say, hey, could you come over here? So if you guys would sit in the middle sections next week, that would be great, okay? And we'll uh, pick it up there next week. Let's pray and ask the Lord to go with us. Here's the other thing we'll try to remember to do next week is turn the AC on if we need to. Am I the only one who's warm? Anybody else warm? Nobody, not that many people are warm. Some people are warm. All right, well then, uh, if you're not warm, why were you falling asleep? <laughs> I mean, I was just looking to make myself feel better about this. All right. Have it your way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to consider these uh, great truths about you, about your character, about the display of your character, your glory. This is what you have always been about and always will be about. You made us to be, in effect, extensions of the display of your character, extensions of your glory. You made us in your image. Lord, the image has been distorted because of sin. And you're remaking it. You're remaking us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and the work that he has done to make that possible. And we thank you for committing to us, unworthy vessels, the message of reconciliation. Lord, it can be a fearful thing to talk to people about their sin, about their offense against you. And so I, we can be faint-hearted about that. Lord, help us to remember why you've made all things and the, the, the lengths to which you have gone to remake us into the image of Jesus. To remember the grace that you have shown to this world, that you've shown to us in particular, the grace that is shown especially in the gospel message and the Savior who's central to it. Help me to remember that so that then, Lord, I am motivated to overcome my fear, my faint-heartedness. And not only willing, but eager then to give the gospel message. So thank you for reminding us of these truths. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week and help us to contemplate these truths. And help us to act upon them as well. We ask you to help us in the weeks ahead as we learn the content of the gospel message. And then how to give the gospel message as well. May all of this result in ambassadors who gladly and regularly go out to spread your fame. Go with us this week, we ask you. Bring us back together this Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.